greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. We are in the throes of the hot summertime, and as the summer season has approached, it gives me more time to devote to doing maybe some more in-depth podcasts. And so since I don't teach a Wednesday night class during the summer, um, I thought that I would do two things in the summer of these podcasts on understanding Christianity. One is to benefit those that do attend or watch online or listen to the Wednesday night class uh, to give you something to listen to uh, during the summer. Also, um, I wanted to do a, uh, a study through the book of 1 Timothy to also help those of my listeners who may be uh, seminary students or pastors or elders or deacons or church leaders who want to understand more about the role of church leaders and pastoral leadership in the life of the church, even if you're not in pastoral leadership. First um, Timothy is a great book that deals with just the whole issue of the life of the church. And so for this summer of 2018, I want to do a podcast going verse by verse through the book of First Timothy. So hopefully this will be a good uh, time to dive into this uh, pastoral epistle and to bring great encouragement to you uh, during this summer. And so before we even start the book of First Timothy, I do want to give some introduction uh, to the book. Obviously, it was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy, uh, probably from Macedonia in the early 60s. Uh, Timothy was a young pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so we need to really understand what was going on in Ephesus, how the church was planted, because the city of Ephesus, what we find out in the book of Acts, ties directly to a lot of the issues that Paul is going to address to Timothy, both contextually and theologically. And so Ephesus was a very important city in the New Testament. It shows up in Acts chapter 19, where Paul visits there for three years. We have the entire letter to the Ephesians. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus after Paul left. And then later on, John the Apostle becomes the pastor. And so in the book of Revelation, it's the first of the seven churches addressed by Jesus. And so Ephesus is a very prominent city in the New Testament. Uh, the city was located in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. And in Paul's day and in Timothy's day, it was the most accessible city in Asia Minor, both by land and sea. It was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. Uh, the Roman governor resided there. There were over 250,000 people in that city. And, and what the city really centered on was the temple to Artemis or the temple to Diana. The temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, it towered over the city. It was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And so Artemis, or Diana, was a multi-breasted fertility goddess. And everything you could imagine happened in that temple. It was almost like a, a bank type of setup where wealthy merchants would store their money. It was kind of like a Bank of England or a Federal Reserve in modern-day equivalent. Uh, since it was close to the sea, 
This temple was also a sanctuary for criminals, where thieves and murderers made their homes. It, it had a, Ephesus had a reputation of being a city of immorality, wickedness, and violent crime. And not only was the temple a bank, if you would, but it was also a museum where some of the most intricate statues and paintings of that time were kept. And so pilgrims would come to the city to see the temple, uh, to worship the goddess Diana. Uh, It was a great place for hucksters to make money. Uh, There were temple artisans and craftsmen who would make little statues of the goddess Artemis, and they would sell them outside the temple. And you've probably been to tourist traps in places like New York City and street vendors where you have the Statue of Liberty and uh, all the little trinkets that go along with the famous landmarks. And that was what was going on in Ephesus. And so you had pagan temple worship to a fertility goddess. You had wealthy bankers. You had the souvenir shop on every corner. Uh, And so Ephesus was this cosmopolitan town steeped deeply in greed, paganism, and the occult. And so let's just read about the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, picking up in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he immediately stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they had heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, remember, the temple of Artemis is basically like the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Gate Bridge. It's it's the main attraction of Ephesus. It was the banking center. It had temple prostitutes. It had all these souvenir shops around it. So it was a money-making center. I mean, it was, it was greed and materialism and, and hucksterism at its best. And there's this man named Demetrius, a, a silversmith who made the souvenirs, and he made little statues and trinkets of Artemis to sell at the souvenir shops. And he was a lucrative businessman who got very rich uh, of this pagan tourism and in this business revolving around the temple. So what does he do? He starts to turn the people against Paul. 
and the Christians for, for messing up their, their business, turning people away from the temple worship. And so not only was their business in jeopardy, but if this keeps going on, Artemis, the goddess, may get really mad and may bring bad things to the city of Ephesus. Um, you have to go back in history and realize this stone uh, fell from the sky, and, and some thought it was magically or somehow supernaturally a representation of Artemis. And, and most historians and scholars believe it was probably a meteorite that resembled a multi-breasted woman, and then because of their pagan superstitions, that became an object of, of, of worship. So the city's in confusion. They start crying out in mob mentality, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They rush into the theater. Uh, there, there's a major riot of major proportions. Now, this theater that they rush into was huge. Uh, the ruins of this theater, the, the artifacts, the archaeology, tells us that it probably held up to, to 24,000 people. I mean, it's like the size of the Pepsi Center uh, here in Denver, uh, many of our basketball arenas around the country. So this also tells us something about Ephesus. It was a center of entertainment, sports, theater, and music. In addition to the sexual lewdness, the theaters were also places of sporting events where the Greeks would compete in the nude, which shocked many of the Jewish people. So, so let's just stop for a moment and get a portrait of Ephesus, the town where Timothy is pastoring. It was a major city of temple worship to a multi-breasted fertility goddess where souvenir shops and all types of greedy idolatry occurred. It was a town steeped in magic, the occult. It was a town with lewd sexual entertainment and obsessed with sports. And this is eerily ironic to me because it sounds like any major city in America. Uh, we have our own temples today called sporting arenas and cineplexes. They're the temples of our day. And we may not have the goddess Artemis as our particular deity, but our culture bows down to the goddess and gods of, of sex, money, and entertainment. So that's the town of Ephesus. That's the town that Timothy is ministering in. It may be the town that sounds like that you're ministering into. So this is not a town that's friendly to the gospel. And that's going to become very important when we start looking at the book of, of 1 Timothy. But let's also fast forward to chapter 20 of the book of Acts because Paul is going to gather the elders of the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders together, for a, a farewell sermon, if you will. And this is found in, in, in Acts chapter 20. And the reason I'm giving you the background of Acts chapter 19 and 20 is because it sets the context of the, book, uh, the town of Ephesus and the elders of Ephesus to set the stage for uh, Timothy's pastoral ministry in Ephesus, which is the context for the book of 1 Timothy. So let's read um, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, this is Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. 
But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And verse 28 becomes very important here. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to the elders here. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those all who are sanctified. Okay, Paul warns the Ephesian elders to pay attention to themselves. Because after Paul leaves... Paul planted the church. Paul stayed there after he leaves, and Timothy becomes the pastor. Paul warns them there are going to be false teachers like ravenous wolves that are going to come in, and they're not going to spare the flock. And then what's amazing, he says, even among your own selves, among you as the elders, there's going to arise even among you and the elders false teachers. And that becomes very, very important as the context of 1 Timothy begins because the issue that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy is the heresy, the false teaching of probably these elders in the church who were causing problems. So with that as the background, okay, two big issues. You live in a pagan, uh, occultic, materialistic, sexually volatile city. That's where Timothy's ministering, Ephesus. And you have elders or quasi-ex-elders who become false teachers that are causing problems in the church. And Timothy's this young pastor, and Paul's no longer there. And so the reason Paul writes the book of 1 Timothy, the letter to 1 Timothy, is to address these issues. Now, I know that's a very big, a very long introduction, but that context has to be established before we just jump right into uh, the epistle. So let's actually now read 1 Timothy. So if you've got a Bible, uh, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to just look at the first 11 verses in this first podcast. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God and our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, there is an urgency to Paul's tone here, and he gets straight to business. I mean, we've got the, the, the obligatory greeting, Paul, an apostle, to Timothy. But then verse 3, Paul urges, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul urges Timothy to charge these false teachers to stop spreading their heresy. Now, the word charge, I charge you, it's a strong word. It denotes sternness. I, I solemnly charge you to do this. Now, the certain men, notice he says, to charge certain persons. He doesn't give the identity of who these are right away probably later on defined as Hymenaeus and Alexander, as you read later on in the passage. But right here, it's just you know, certain persons that are unidentified. The bottom line, Paul gets right to the point, is they are teaching a different doctrine, a different gospel. Paul has strong words for people who teach different doctrine or a different gospel. Probably his strongest words are in Galatians chapter 1. 6 through 9. To the Galatian church, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there isn't another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, Timothy, certain people are teaching a different doctrine, a different gospel. They are under a curse. They are distorting. They are leading people astray. I'm charging you. I'm solemnly saying as pastor, you need to get busy to go confront these false teachers. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:4, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Timothy, get busy addressing this false teaching. Verse 4 says, they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship, which is by faith in God. They were having an obsessive preoccupation with, with myths and endless genealogies. Now, there's a lot of debate in scholarship as far as what Paul's talking about. It could be fictitious Jewish distortions of Old Testament stories, or it could be Gnostic myths about creation. Um, Paul addresses this later on in the book, in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul says in 2 Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In Titus, another pastoral epistle, Titus 1, 13 through 14, the testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We really aren't exactly sure what these speculations were, what these myths and English genealogies were, but they were distracting, they were distorting the gospel, they were false teachings, they were taking the focus off of Christ. They were heretical distractions from the gospel. And Paul says, listen, they're not based upon the stewardship from God that's by faith. That's the second half there of verse 4. It's not the stewardship from God that's by faith. Um, the word stewardship there comes from the root word in the Greek language for household or foundation, the foundation of the faith. What Paul's saying here is, Timothy, you as a pastor and the elders in the church need to be good stewards of the faith and good stewards of the church. You need to be uh, taking care of God's house you need to be good stewards of the gospel because these false teachers, they're disrupting God's house. They're tearing down the foundation. Uh, they're, they're going towards the edifice, if you will. They're, they're tearing down as opposed to building up. They're being terrible stewards of God's people. So the bottom line, Paul says, is, Timothy, you need to adamantly rebuke these false teachers that are in the Ephesian church because they're distracting God's people by distorting God's word. Instead, the focus should be on the truth of the gospel. Now, in verses 5 through 7, Paul gives the aim, the aim of this warning. He says very clearly, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, Paul charges Timothy with, with two main goals or two aims as he is supposed to warn these false teachers. Number one, they needed to develop genuine love, these false teachers, and they needed to stop wandering into useless discussions that promoted confusion and heresy. Verse 5, the main issue is, is love. It's always first on all of Paul's lists. And Paul doesn't really define or modify love. He just says the, the aim of our charge is love. We can assume from the rest of the Bible that it's love for Jesus and love for others. I mean, it's, it's, it's the great commandment and the second great commandment. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, when elders or false teachers in the church are wandering off into heresy, distorting God's word, they are not showing love for God, and they're not showing love for others. They're, they're, they're totally abandoning the great commandment and the second great commandment. 
They're being self-absorbed, loving themselves and deceiving themselves. They're not loving God and they're not loving others. So there is no genuine love in false teaching. And so Paul lists three attributes or characteristics of genuine love right there in verse 5. First of all, a pure heart, a pure heart. In 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Matthew 5.8, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Notice there in that psalm, cherishing sin in the heart. The word in the Hebrew language means to, to nurture or protect, like a mother protecting sin in, in, in a child's heart. A pure heart doesn't cherish or promote or nurture or protect sin. Instead, it cherishes Christ. It seeks Christ. It, it desires Christ. A pure heart finds ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone. Now listen to the prayer of David in Psalm 8611. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Give me an undivided heart to fear your name. Psalm 5110, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, the way that you truly love God and love others and lead the church, first of all, comes from a pure heart, having a clean heart before God. Secondly, it comes from having a good conscience. Now, what is the conscience? What is the conscience? The conscience is an inner awareness, an inner ability to discern right from wrong. It's a moral sensitivity. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul addresses the conscience in a negative way. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, having a seared or defiled conscience. Titus 1.5, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So how do you develop a good conscience instead of a seared conscience he talks about here or a defiled conscience? Well, I think one of the primary ways you do that is you hold fast to sound doctrine. You immerse yourself in Scripture. You, you pray for that clear conscience. You know, Hebrews 13, 18, the writer says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures. We pray for it. Uh, we live under the Lordship of Christ. We, we truly desire to have that conscience where we know right from wrong, we live right from wrong, we, we have that inner awareness 
that prompting of the Holy Spirit through saturation in Scripture and prayer that enables us to make wise, godly decisions. Number three, he says, a sincere faith. The word sincere also, you know, obviously means authentic, that you're walking in integrity, you're, you're actively looking outside of yourselves to, to faith in Christ. Um, a false faith, an inauthentic faith is hypocritical, it's deceptive. It's always looking inward to yourself to measure how good you are by, by how good you're doing as opposed to looking outside of yourself to Christ. So loving God and loving others means that you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now in verse 6, he goes back to these certain persons. Certain persons by swerving from these, okay, swerving from these, um, a pure heart a good conscience, a sincere faith, they've swerved from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. The word swerve means to shoot past the goal, to be wide of the mark. The, the word wandered means to deviate, to turn from the faith. These false teachers had gotten so far off base, they really had no idea what they're talking about. They're very confident that they know what they're talking about. They're acting like great teachers of God's Word. Instead of focusing believers on the truth of the gospel and loving God and loving others and, and the things of the gospel, they were moving into weird Jewish mythology, extraneous trivia, meaningless talk. Um, it says certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions, discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Titus 1.10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. I mean, don't you see that today? Weird, trivial, novel teachings that people have really no idea what they're talking about, but they talk like they're authoritative on these issues supposedly of the gospel, but they're not really related to the gospel at all. They're, they've wandered into myths. They've wandered into weird things, but they're so confident in what they believe, and yet they're distorting. They're wandering. They're swerving. Now, in verses 8 through 11, Paul's going to introduce the role of God's law. Um, God's law, or specifically, when I talk about the law of God, I'm talking about this um, in Sunday mornings as I'm preaching through the book of Galatians as well. Uh, we can summarize the law as the Ten Commandments, okay, the moral, binding, universal law that God has given that, that's binding on all eras. Okay? Some people say you know, the Ten Commandments are no longer applicable, it's a, that God's law is a bygone era. I'm not talking about ceremonial law, the ceremonial laws like washings and circumcision that took place under the ancient Israel. I'm not talking about civil laws of ancient Israel. I'm talking about the moral law, the binding law, the law that, that transcends the Old Testament that goes into the New Testament that's the moral binding law of God. And, and Paul talks about how... Um, the, the law is good if we understand the rightful use of God's law. Look at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, So I just want to talk about the three uses of the law. 
Obviously, this comes from Reformed theology. It comes from the writings of Calvin and the Reformers. I think it's very helpful to talk about the three uses of the law. What is use number one? And when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Okay, so number one, the first use of the law is to restrain evil in society. Sometimes akin to a locked door that restrains people from a trespassing. Um, Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say the, is the law sin? By no means, if, I had not known, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet. If the law had said, you shall not covet. So God has given his Ten Commandments as, as a basic way to keep cultures and societies from being chaotic, from having evil run rampant. He's given to the civil authorities, to the magistrates, to governments, the ability to, to use the, the Ten Commandments as a way to curb anarchy in society. That's the first use of the law. Second use of the law, we've been dealing a lot of this with Galatians. So if you're listening to the Galatians sermons on Sunday morning, uh, Paul ad- addresses, especially at the end of chapter 3, the second use of the law. And so the second use of the law is to show us our desperate inability to keep the law, that we're imprisoned. It's like a harsh taskmaster, and it shows us our desperate need for a savior. It's like a mirror that exposes our sin. It's like a prison warden that we want to get out of it because we're so in, in the bondage of despair. You can go back and listen to those, those passages or those, those sermons on Galatians 3. So the first use of the law is just in society in general to curb anarchy. Second use of the law is to drive us to our knees and despair that we can't keep the law and we need a Savior to save us from our sins because we're under the law. But the third use of the law is it is a good rule or guide for living the Christian life in joyful obedience to God as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the law does not go away once you become a Christian. The moral law is still binding on the Christian, and you don't obey it in order to get saved. You obey it because you have been saved. You have been given the Holy Spirit to live in you, and the Holy Spirit empowers you and gives you the grace to obey joyfully out of gratitude for your salvation, not as a way to earn it. Now, these false teachers here in 1 Timothy were either abusing the law into two areas. Okay, they were not using the law lawfully. Number one, they were probably delving into legalism, so adding extra Jewish novelties or Jewish things to the gospel in order to be saved or accepted by God. This is a lot of like what the Judaizers were doing in Galatians by adding circumcision and dietary laws. This could have been the way they were using the law unlawfully by legalism. Or the second way is by license. They threw the law out the window and said you can live however you want. In verses 9 through 10, Paul addresses what we traditionally call the second table of the law, which is the fifth through the ten of the, of the ten commandments. Commandments 5 through 10. He's going through the second use of the law to show how ungodly sinners, lost people, need to be broken under their rebellion against the law and repent. And he uses three words to describe these men. He says in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient those who are insubordinate and reject God's authority. 
for the ungodly and sinners, those who arrogantly reject God in blatant sin, for the unholy and for the profane, those who are, are pagan and, and prone to unclean idolatry. So what Paul's going to do is say, listen, these false teachers are acting like unbelievers. And as unbelievers, they need to have the law as a mirror to expose their rebellion, to drive them to their knees in brokenness and despair so they will repent from this sin and flee to Christ for salvation. That's the second use of the law. And so what Paul does is he goes through commandments 5 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. Now notice what he says here. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. In there, he's got for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Okay, Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He's got murderers. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 10, he's got the sexually immoral and those who practice homosexuality. Seventh commandment, I mean, eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He's got enslavers, those who steal other people and enslave them. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. He's got liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now you say, well, I don't see the 10th commandment there. Paul gives commandments five through nine, but I don't see the 10th commandment. What is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. This is the only commandment that deals with the internal heart and not outward actions. It focuses on desires instead of actions. So how does the 10th commandment break the first nine? It's interesting. When you study the 10 commandments, the 10th commandment really is the breaking of all the first nine commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. Well, you covet another god over the one true God, even if that means taking yourself as the place of God. Second commandment, we may not bow down to a carved idol, but we may have elevated money and possessions as idols we worship. Third commandment, we may justify our sinful desires and neglect or misuse the name of the Lord in the process. Fourth commandment, instead of honoring the Lord on His day of worship, we desire worldly pursuits that take us out of assembling with other believers. Fifth commandment, we may covet what our parents give us material and only honor them when it's convenient for us. Sixth commandment, we may covet what someone else has or harbor bitterness or anger in our hearts that Jesus equates with murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Seventh commandment, we may not outwardly commit adultery, but we may lust after another person and commit adultery in our hearts by coveting. Eighth commandment, coveting is the root sin that actually leads to stealing. Why do we steal? Because we covet what somebody else has. Ninth commandment, the reason we lie or bear false witness is because we covet being recognized or we covet being in on the juicy gossip or we covet somehow getting back at someone for lying. This last commandment is very important because it protects us from thinking that we only break God's law by doing outward actions instead of having internal sinful desires of the heart. Paul sums up the breaking of the law with this catch-all Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word sound is going to show up a lot in 1 Timothy. The word sound is a medical term. It refers to healthy. And notice how Paul refers to the Christian doctrine in the singular. 
sound teaching, sound doctrine. It's the technical term for the authoritative doctrine of the church. In contrast, when Paul speaks about these false teachers, he's always speaking in the plural. They're false teachings. The teachings of the false teachers. In, in, in opposition to the sound teaching, singular, of the gospel. So true, authoritative, scriptural doctrine is healthy. It's life-giving. It promotes unity in the building up of the church. It's sound doctrine. In contrast, false or unsound teachings are infectious diseased, and can destroy the church. Verse 11, as we wrap this first section up, Paul's chief concern is the gospel of the glory of God. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. These false teachers need to stop their heretical teaching at once and repent and turn back to Jesus and God's glory in the gospel and sound doctrine. See, Paul's ultimate concern is God's glory and God's gospel. And thankfully, those are the two pillars of our mission statement as Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our first statement in our mission statement is we exist to display God's glory. It always comes back first to God's glory. And the second pillar in our mission statement as a church is we exist to declare God's gospel. So God's glory and God's gospel are front and center to the life of our church because they're front and center to the scriptures. And, and, and Paul says, listen, Timothy, I'm going to round this whole thing out for you. So let me just summarize what Paul's saying. Timothy, you're a pastor in a hard place. You're in a pagan city You've got false teachers in your church. You need to get busy and go sternly warn them that they are destroying the church by their false doctrine. It's not about love. It's not about God's glory. It's not about the gospel. They are distorting these things. They are acting rebelliously. They need to repent under the weight of the law to expose their sin so that they can be broken and come to repentance and be saved because they're destroying the church. And you, Timothy, as a pastor, have the responsibility to go address it. And obviously, Timothy is timid. Timothy's unsure of himself. So Paul has to keep reassuring Timothy of his pastoral role to go confront false teaching. So as you think about your own church, you ask the question, are, are we a church that promotes sound doctrine? Are we a church that's life-giving? Are we a church that's focused on the gospel? Are we a church that obeys the, the great commandment of loving God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and we love others as ourselves? Are there you know, pockets of false teaching in your church? If you're a pastor listening to this, or you're an elder, or a church leader, how are you dealing with those things in the life of your church? How are you dealing with the culture around you? A lot of practical questions to ask as you think about these opening verses of 1 Timothy. Well, I thank you for listening. We'll continue on this podcast, uh, this summer of Understanding Christianity, going through the book of 1 Timothy as I have an opportunity to come in and record these. Um, I hope that this has been helpful, this first uh, go-around as we, as we look at this wonderful book uh, that Paul has written to the young pastor at Ephesus, Timothy. And so, until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.